Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. No surprise, despite all the TV weather hype, we survived the first big snowstorm of 2022. Yet already this winter, we've seen several single-digit days. Mid-month, Governor Lamont warned residents a severe cold would continue through at least this week. The frigid weather is dangerous, but it also drives up demand for electricity and the costs consumers pay. NPR reported that the Energy Information Administration found nearly half of U.S. households heat their homes with natural gas, and they'll pay 30% more on average this winter, while homes warmed with electricity will pay 6% more. Other fuel users will also see higher bills, with heating oil users expected to pay 43% more on average than last winter, while propane users will pay 54% more. So what happens if a cold snap continues? In December, the region's electric grid operator, ISO New England, issued a warning that rolling blackouts could hit our region. Coming up where we live, ISO New England joins us to talk about that warning and what's being done to keep the grid operating. We'll also hear from a consumer advocate group, Public Citizen, about energy equity issues. First, joining our conversation on Zoom is Catherine Morehouse. She's energy reporter for Politico. Catherine, welcome to our show. Thanks, Lucy. Great to be here. You can also join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Catherine, let's start off. When uh, this warning was issued by ISO New England, can you clarify um, what was said at the time and how natural gas is seen as part of the problem? Yeah, so the New England ISO has actually been experiencing these problems for about a decade. And the problem is essentially that as natural gas has become a more dominant electricity source, bumping out other sources of electricity, such as coal and nuclear, um, you see a little bit of a competition in the wintertime uh, between gas used as a heating source and uh, gas used as purely kind of an electricity source. And so as you see demand for electricity and heat ramp up during really cold uh, weather events, then there isn't enough supply for both. And electric generators end up deferring to the gas sector, um, which, uh, you know, in urgent situations might force those electric generators to trigger a controlled power outage, um, which, of course, can lead to a heating loss if your if your heat's electricity. Uh, and the interdependence of those two resources is becoming a bigger issue nationally. Um, and like I said, it's something that's been going on for a decade. But I think weather events like Texas um, that happened last year, where where you saw those rolling blackouts actually happen, just kind of raised the awareness for everyone. When we look at both electric and gas operators and this competition in the winter months, uh, tell us more about what that means exactly for consumers. Yeah, absolutely. So. 
you know, you have a situation where you have your local distribution companies or your gas utility, uh, and then you have your electric utility. And they're different. They're two different industries with uh, separate protocols. Uh, and one major difference is that gas utilities tend to enter into these more expensive kind of longer term contracts where you have to commit further in advance. But once they have those you know, primary firm contracts, then they are the priority for fuel delivery. But for electric generators, it's they are less likely to commit to those uh, firm contracts because they would have to bid into they have to bid into the regional market, the ISO New England market, and the cost of those contracts are included. So they're incentivized to choose the cheaper option. And so this reliance on the short term contracts uh, is is part of that problem in the region, and is why you know you see if if there is competition, you see the the gas utilities um, kind of went out and and without. Uh, enough firm firm contracts, then there isn't enough uh, incentive to build out more pipeline capacity or infrastructure uh, that might be needed for higher gas demand. In Connecticut, it's also unique because we we know many of us remember under Governor Malloy, there was a real push to expand uh, the natural gas uh, system and taxpayers subsidized this. And so now uh, what uh, consumers are seeing are uh, high costs. Uh, Catherine. Yes, yes. And yeah, you all, um, you know, pay, Connecticut offers rebates to switch from oil heating to natural gas furnaces, uh, which are, you know, supposed to be more efficient. But environmental groups have pointed out that, you know, not only does, has that raised costs when, when natural gas costs are, are high, like we've discussed, but it also, uh, you know, increases uh, the overall greenhouse gas emissions of buildings. And of course, you all also have environmental goals. So, so that's been a problem there as well. At the time, it was seen that that um, a conversion to natural gas would be a potential uh, cleaner and a part of the climate solution. But that hasn't been the case when we look at uh, the number of leaks and combustion emissions, Catherine. Yeah, that's right. And the state is actually now behind on its climate goals. And, and you've seen emissions from buildings rise in, in the past couple of years. Uh, and the state has a mandate to reduce carbon emissions 80% below 2001 levels by 2050, but you know, continuing to uh, incentivize gas in buildings uh, has, not, has not been helping the state reach those goals. So we're talking about incentives uh, statewide, but when we look at uh, subsidies federally for energy conversions, what does it look like? Yeah, there are a lot of, honestly, there are a lot of subsidies for a lot of different kinds of of electricity resources. I think people, you hear people complain a lot about, you know, how wind and solar uh, receive tax credits. Um, but we've also, what we also forget is that the federal government has subsidized the fossil fuel industry for years, um, specifically the production of coal, coal and oil and gas. Uh, and some of those incentives have existed for decades. And there are also tax credits for generally the production of, of cleaner resources like uh, advanced nuclear, although that hasn't uh, really happened yet. Um, there is also a proposal under the Build Back Better plan to give tax credits to green hydrogen production, which is considered a potential green alternative to natural gas. Can you talk more about that? Because I understand that Europe is ahead of us uh, when it comes to the, the green hydrogen. Yeah, green hydrogen is tricky because it takes a lot of power to produce the green hydrogen. So the question is, you know, if you're if if you're polluting the air when you make the hydrogen, you know, is it really is it really clean? Um, so green hydrogen is when you create that fuel uh, through renewable energy. 
um, but it, that's expensive. So it's uh, it's a work in progress, and that's the Build Back Better plan um, would give a, a really uh, significant tax credit boost to green hydrogen production. Um, and there are a few plants in progress. Uh, there is one in California uh, that is they're they're converting a 100% natural gas plant to a 100% hydrogen plant. At least that's the goal. Um, but we haven't seen you know it actually happen yet. You're hearing Catherine Morehouse here on Where We Live. She's an energy reporter for Politico as we talk about the the strain, especially uh, in winter, on the, the grid here in our region. You can join us if you have a question or comment, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, we hear about energy diversification. So let's talk about that, Catherine, and how that could help alleviate the strain. Yeah, absolutely. There, there has been a lot of talk about, you know, diversifying where you get your electricity sources. Like we talked about before natural gas was such a big boom, we, we got a lot of our electricity from coal and nuclear. And now there's a push to get more of your energy from renewables. And one really viable option in Connecticut is offshore wind. And I know the state has some ambitious offshore wind mandates and regulators are looking toward, um, you know, how they can do that in the cheapest way possible. Um, of course, you know, solar is another big one. If you have solar on your rooftop, then that, you know, ultimately lowers the amount of electricity you need to take from the grid. So that's also um, kind of a way to improve the efficiency of the whole system. And there are a lot of other kind of basic energy efficiency measures you can use as well that just lower overall demand, um, as well as, you know, green hydrogen, like we talked about, and potentially um, uh, hydropower. So those are all options, but uh, they all come with their own caveats. So it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a difficult uh, problem for sure. We're talking about energy sources in our state and the factors unique to Connecticut and our region that drive up costs during a time when the oil and gas markets are seeing instability. Again, Catherine Morehouse is here with us from Politico. And joining us now on Zoom is Ann George, who's Vice President of External Affairs at ISO New England. That's the region's power grid operator. And welcome to our show. Thanks, Lucy. Nice to nice to be here. So I mentioned at the top of the show that ISO New England uh, had put out a warning. Uh, Gordon Van Wheelie, the president and CEO, warning of a heightened risk to the region's power supply if a particularly long cold snap occurred this winter. So can you talk about that warning? What were the factors that led you to issue that? And, you know, how's it looking right now? Sure. So, so Lucy, we do these winter outlooks every winter. We've done them for, you know, the past close to 25 years. And it's a seasonal outlook that our operators uh, do to look at the, um, the weather that we are projecting for the, the winter months. And then the, we look at demand on the system and then the, the situation with supply on the system. So heading into this winter, uh, what was playing out was we obviously we saw what happened in Texas last winter, which you know, nobody in the industry wants to see happen again. And we knew that, you know, this has been, as, as Catherine mentioned, we've had this, um, you know, natural gas for electricity um, issue that's per, you know, persisted in the region for over a decade. And so we, we are aware of that. And then we see the, the global issues with liquefied natural gas. And what happens in this region when it gets cold in the winter months, the pipelines, as Catherine mentioned, are really um, purchased for serving the home heating needs. And so the use of the, of the pipeline system 
really goes to, to serve those needs. So the, the natural gas uh, power sector has to rely on liquefied natural gas coming in from overseas. And you know, what was happening in the global markets, the demand for, for liquefied natural gas, the pricing issues for liquefied natural gas in Europe and in Asia was creating the potential for this region to be a lower priced uh, region and so that the liquefied natural gas would go elsewhere. And so that became a real concern. It was uncertain. Um, we weren't sure how it was gonna play out this winter, but it was a concern. And then oil, we've seen in past winters that the oil uh, electric generators, they can store a certain amount of oil um, on site. And we, we do have some natural gas generators in the region that can switch to oil, but that's somewhat limited. And so if we're in the midst of a, um, a storm or a, a stretch, long stretch of cold weather, they may not be able to resupply oil uh, to, to produce that electricity. And then as everybody knows, we've had supply chain issues related to the pandemic trucker shortages and all of those um, issues, you know, kind of compounded to, to say, you know what, we need to make sure that that the public is aware. We were we really were trying not to panic uh, anyone, but to say this is a real vulnerability in the region and um, be aware so that if you hear ISO New England talking about these issues, we're going to try to, you know, give you enough uh, uh, um, warning and enough uh, lead time to, to make preparations. Um, if we had to resort to that kind of last step, which are the controlled power outages, and you really do that so that you don't have uncontrolled power outages that could create a bigger issue for the grid. Before you have to exercise that option of a controlled blackout, you ISO had also ISO New England had also suggested customers could ease up on energy use by lowering their thermostat and minimizing cooking and appliance use. You know, is that really realistic when we look at you know frigid temperatures and putting the onus on on customers in that way? Yeah, you know um, we haven't really looked to conservation efforts in the winter as much as as utilities have turned to that in in the summer months. Um, but it really can be a tool that that can be used in the winter. Um, you can you can make your thermostat um, slightly. You turn it down so that that it's not running as often. You can unplug your resources, and by doing actions like that, or if, you know, let's say an office building, um, you know, had everybody working from home, and which is happening these days anyway, um, but turned off those lights. That can that can actually head off further. Um, uh, emergency measures that we would have to take. And so we really do believe that a, you know, if we were to come out and say, we see something coming, we see some concerns, and we ask, uh, we work with the, the states, uh, state, you know, policymakers with the, the local utilities to get out that message to conserve. We do believe that that, that would be a helpful uh, opportunity so that we can hopefully head off more extreme emergency measures. Again, you're hearing on where we live, Anne George, Vice President of External Affairs for ISO New England, the region's power grid operator. And so we've got, what, six or seven weeks left of winter. So how is it looking, uh, Anne? Uh, is this still something that should be a concern uh, for our region, uh, this potential for, for controlled blackouts? Sure. So, so the concern, you know, stays with us. Um, but, but one thing we did put in place was a 21-day look-ahead and by looking three weeks in advance, we can kind of see the weather coming, we can see the, the cold weather coming and look at the supply situation. 
And so right now, where we stand in the in this uh, winter, you know, looking ahead, we feel we're pretty good. We're in good shape. Um, but, you know, contingencies can happen. Machines can break, especially in really cold weather. Um, but as you get to the February time period in the winter, the daylight hours, you know, are longer. Um, you know, we, we get we can kind of see that end in sight. And it's really the, the major concern is towards the end of December into through January. So we're feeling we're feeling better, but we're always on guard. And, uh, you know, that concern about this region and the underlying fuel mix and or the fuel supply network is really, really the thing that that we hope to work with the New England states and industry to to make some changes on. Uh, and uh, you know, as we're talking about you know some of these uh, these plans uh, to help uh, protect uh, ratepayers uh, during the winter months, you know, can you talk more about uh, your role uh, as the uh, power grid operator for the region? You know, how you work not only to ensure supply, but that you're protecting the interests of ratepayers. You're a, a private nonprofit uh, entity, and I'm just wondering if you can talk about uh, some of the measures that you're taking uh, to include uh, the public in the work that ISO New. England does. Sure. You know, so we are private nonprofit. Uh, we work uh, closely with the states and the, the industry participants and uh, consumer advocates and members of the public in the region. Uh, we are regulated by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and we are charged with overseeing the wholesale markets. And the markets really are where, where we, you know, uh, entities come into the market to compete, to sell their power, and to buy their power. And um, it is based on the lowest cost. And so when we run markets, we are um, you know, using that competition to drive down costs. And the resulting price is you know, a, a cost-effective, uh, lower cost you know, price for the wholesale uh, piece of, of electricity. But what, what consumers see on their bill is really coming from the retail uh, side, which is regulated by the states. And so how they take that wholesale price and then um, use that in, in developing their, their retail costs, that is something that moves to the state level. And we, you know, we work closely with the states, um, but we really oversee the wholesale piece of it, uh, not the retail side. Um, but, you know, we've seen consumers, we've seen um, states really want to understand what drives the wholesale price because that can have an impact clearly on the retail price. Um, you know, the other year uh, before the pandemic, actually two years now, uh, as you know, Governor Lamont and I think every uh, New England governor except New Hampshire, you know, they signed on to a statement uh, to reform the region's complex wholesale electric market. As you know, they're frustrated over ISO New England's policies. Uh, they believe that undermine the economic viability of clean energy sources and are driving up transmission costs reflected in consumer bills. And how do you respond to that? Sure. So, so you know, we, we heard from the states. Um, we've actually worked closely with the states to make some of the changes. We, one of the things that they they were looking for were some changes to our market rules uh, that would um, bring in additional clean energy. And you know, clean energy right now is is a higher priced uh, you know uh, route to go. And so, uh, because our markets are are cost uh, try to get the lowest cost resources available that you know the the clean energy oftentimes doesn't make it to the market but we've been working on market changes um, we've also been working on transmission changes 
uh, transmission planning changes for clean energy. One thing to note, though, is that you know all of this clean energy uh, and you know the, the new infrastructure will be costly, and that's something that you know we believe strongly that doing it through wholesale markets, doing it in a regional manner, gets you to the lowest cost possible to to meet these you know very stringent decarbonization goals. And so that is something we've been working with the states on. At the end of the day, if, if ISO New England and the wholesale markets are not um, proving beneficial for the state, the state has options and they can exercise those options. Um, but we believe that being participating in a regional market, participating in a regional planning system, uh, and having ISO oversee those reliability needs is the preferable way to go. You're hearing Ann George here on Where We Live, ISO New England Vice President of External Affairs. we got to head to break, but I want to thank you for joining us uh, here on the show. Great. Thank you, Lucy. You're listening to Where We Live. Catherine Morehouse from Politico will stay with us. And coming up, we're going to talk to a national consumer advocacy organization about what we just heard and about energy equity issues. And later, got geothermal heating or questions about it? You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Public Radio, I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Later this morning, the legislators legislature's Energy and Technology Committee will host a forum to talk about the issues Connecticut's power grid faces. Besides talking about grid reliability, speakers are expected to discuss how the state can move closer to net zero carbon emissions. That forum will be live streamed on CTN starting at 11 a.m. Now we're talking about the regional power grid with Politico energy reporter Catherine Morehouse. Uh, Before we hear from our next guest, Catherine, I just wonder if you could chime in uh, after hearing uh, Anne from ISO New England and uh, talk about it, its policies and some of the frustration from uh, governors related to, to how to get more uh, clean energy options to consumers. Yeah, absolutely. That, and I've, I've heard that frustration from uh, governors and regulators in Connecticut in particular um, for a couple of years. And it's, I think it's difficult when you are a you know, regional um, entity and these states have all these different policies. And that's actually been a major conflict with with states across the country who are uh, in these 
these regional organizations. And that's not to say that these organizations um, can't, you know, bring states toward these clean energy goals. A lot of people actually think they're the best solution to doing that. But uh, there, there is that tension and um, particularly the rules in ISO New England regulators have felt really, you know, favor gas resources above other resources. And there have been some market rule changes um, in effort to change that a little bit to fix that and bring more renewable energy resources on. But, you know, it, it, there is still that frustration and, and folks still want to see better market rules to incentivize more renewables. Joining us now on Zoom is Tyson Slocum, director of the Energy Program for Public Citizen. That's a national nonprofit consumer advocacy organization founded by Connecticut's Ralph Nader. Uh, Slocum uh, says there's a need for better regulation, transparency, and consumer protections in the energy sector. Tyson, welcome to our show. Lucy, great to be here. So in your role at Public Citizen, can you talk about the equity issues in the energy sector as far as consumers are concerned? I mean, we've got a full-fledged crisis in America today. Uh, almost half of American families, 44%, are technically defined as low income. That's over 50 million families. These are our neighbors. These are the people uh, serving us uh, at stores. And with the pandemic, there is an affordability crisis. And as we know, inflation is a huge problem right now. And more than a third of the price increases we're seeing are energy related. And that means bigger uh, energy bills for working families. And so we need an energy system that prioritizes sustainability, reliability, and affordability for uh, uh, Connecticut and American families. And the problem is, is that in New England, electricity policy has been privatized and is run by ISO New England. Your guest uh, just before me is from that uh, private organization. And the general public is banned from attending any meeting where uh, electricity policy and the future of the New England energy system are debated and voted upon. And we at Public Citizen have pushed for years to uh, get ISO New England and its sister organization, Neepool, to open those meetings to the public so that all of us and journalists from public radio and elsewhere can actually witness these deliberations where the decisions are made. So if someone wanted to attend these meetings, as you mentioned, you'd mentioned ban, but they're required to pay to participate, Tyson? You have to pay $500 in order to attend. And we at Public Citizen refuse to do that because we are never going to pay a cover charge to participate in our democracy. Mm. Uh, you mentioned uh, ratepayers. When we think about this as a pri- ISO New England as a private nonprofit, the revenues coming from electric and natural gas ratepayers through the companies that use the grid system. We know they pass those costs on to ratepayers. Uh, Anne also talked about the wholesale and retail market markets and what states can actually regulate. So can you talk about uh, some of the issues there? Right. Well, I mean, New England states uh, made a series of decisions in the 1990s to deregulate the electricity system. And uh, this was pushed by largely by a company called Enron that had set up lobbying shops in all of the state capitals uh, in New England. And what wasn't really uh, told people at the time or journalists was that when you deregulate the energy system, the states voluntarily were relinquishing control over wholesale markets 
to the federal government. And the federal government, unfortunately, the federal agencies called the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission has delegated sweeping uh, Federal Power Act authorities to these private corporations like ISO New England, where FERC does not worry about the day-to-day -day activities. They have uh, empowered ISO New England to make all of the decisions. Um, they have to uh, send uh, uh, proposed changes in tariffs to FERC for approval, but the way that those tariff changes are structured, it's very difficult for FERC to strike down uh, bits and pieces of it. Uh, and so as a result, the ISO New England is in the driver's seat. And you mentioned the states within uh, uh, New England are not happy about the current situation. Five of the six New England states sent a stern letter to ISO New England saying that the current governance structure of ISO New England is hindering progress to decarbonizing and, and for energy affordability. And you look at the salaries and the administrative budget of ISO New England, you know, the CEO, Gordon Van Wheelie, makes $2.3 million a year. That's all funded through your utility bills. That's an outrageous salary for uh, an organization that refuses to accommodate the interests of states, refuses to allow the public or journalists to witness their proceedings. We need top to bottom reforms in the operation of ISO New England. We've got to have a board of directors and a CEO that actually will be responsive to the needs of working families across New England. Catherine Morehouse is still with us, energy reporter for Politico. Uh, Catherine, I wanted to hear uh, your um, uh, your perspective as well as a longtime energy reporter. When we think about uh, these regional transmission organizations like ISO New England, how uh, this is unique, uh, and you know some of the 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 challenges uh, to this model. Yeah, there. You know, as Tyson pointed out, there are undoubtedly challenges to the model, and I think the the argument is from of the benefits would be that, you know, regional coordination is really important when you're bringing inter more intermittent resources like wind and solar online, you need to be able to coordinate across states, especially smaller states like ISO New England. But like Tyson, as Tyson points out, there are a lot of fundamental structural problems with, with the current uh, regional entity that that uh, governs a lot of these grids. So I, I think that there is a real desire for, um, for change and, and for uh, people to, like I said, for, for market changes, um, to make sure that the state priorities are, are being taken into account and that these regional entities are in fact, you know, using their regional powers to bring, to think about how to bring these intermittent resources online and think about how to build transmission in a way that, um, you know, creates uh, cheaper and cleaner access to energy. We've got to take a quick break, but I wanted to thank Tyson Slocum for coming on the show, director of the Energy Program for Public Citizen, a national nonprofit consumer advocacy organization. We've got 30 seconds, Tyson, for listeners who are sitting at home angry about what they're hearing. What can they do? Well, we'll definitely call your governor and your elected official and tell them that we need top to bottom changes at ISO New England. The entire board should resign. Gordon Van Wheelie should resign. And we need new leadership that's actually going to be responsive. And just one last thing. Another big problem here is the prioritization of energy infrastructure for corporate profit rather than reliability and sustainability. 
The United States produces more natural gas than any other country on earth. And we are now exporting record amounts of gas out of the United States. The United States is now the largest gas exporter in the world. Gas exports out of New England to Canada are at record highs. And when you look at pipeline capacity, we've looked at the data at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, more and more pipeline capacity in New England and elsewhere is taken up by financial speculators, Citadel, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs. This isn't about uh, uh, natural gas distribution utilities competing with power generators. This is about allowing pure financial speculators control over pipeline capacity. We need an honest assessment of how energy infrastructure is being prioritized in New England. Tyson Slocum again with Public Citizen. Thanks for coming on the show. Politico's Catherine Morehouse will stay with us uh, before we uh, end the show. Uh, I want to remind our listeners that it's actually Connecticut Public Radio's winter membership drive. Before we uh, continue with our third segment, I want to bring into our conversation now a colleague of mine, Ryan Karen King. It's been a long time. I haven't seen Yeah, I haven't been in the booth here. Unfortunately, this time I'm not a guest. And I was actually getting a little nervous that you're going to ask me an energy question. There. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I work here. Uh, you know, obviously Lucy works here. Cat uh, Pastor is over on the board. Um, our technical producer. I don't actually know if that's the official title, but anyways, it's a lot. A lot of work to keep a show on air, and we're here to ask for your support. Um, first of all, to support wonderful programs like Where We Live. If you're listening right now, you're probably like me, and you like to learn. Um, and <laughs> I got to say, there aren't too many places where you can find 60 minutes, especially on you know the local level in Connecticut, of like material that's not just like you know someone reading you know an hour's worth of Wikipedia articles into a microphone. But we have a production staff where we live has a great team of producers, uh, Lucy and Kat as well, all thinking about you know, how we tell these stories of our state that are relevant, how it pertains to the country we live in, and also, you know, our place in the world. Um, that's super, I think, a super cheesy way to say it. I think, you know, Lucy would have a better way to say it. But I really appreciate it. Um, this is coming from my heart. I think uh, this is a program uh, so, so worth supporting um, in whatever inarticulate way I just said. Um, but yeah, that's because I'm emotional. Uh, and uh, I'll give you the number, 1-800-584-2788. You can also go to ctpublic.org. Maybe the word is passionate, Ryan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely well, have that. Thank you for coming in today to talk about, you know, all of our programs here on Connecticut Public Radio, including where we live. You talked about uh, my team. Uh, we put a lot of, of time and effort into booking guests and talking about uh, issues that matter to you here in Connecticut, uh, thinking about how global issues impact us here at home. If you appreciate this kind of program, please support us at 1-800-584-2788. It's a short winter campaign. So again, you've got this week to either give us a call or go online at ctpublic.org and click that donate button to support your public radio station. And I can't believe it's February already, and that means Valentine's Day is coming. And you can actually, when you call in with a pledge to Connecticut Public Radio uh, tomorrow, February 2nd, is actually the last day to reserve the Valentine's Day roses for a gift of, of $13 a month for Friday, February 11th delivery, or $14 a month for Saturday February 12th delivery. So it's a, a good way uh, to get that uh, to do um, 
off of your list, Ryan. Oh, yeah. Send them to your friend. Send them to your neighbor or your significant other. There's there's a lot of you know ways to send roses to people. Uh, you don't have to just order just one. We've also got a few <laughs> other uh, uh, talent. Well, sorry, I'm looking at the paper here. It says talent gift list, but it's basically ways we can thank you. Um, there's one. We have a community partnership where you can donate uh, a book, one book a month to a local kid, uh, and that's for a gift of ten dollars a month. So, you know, back to the learning thing. <laughs> Education's awesome. You know, learning's awesome. Um, you know, this really does sound like a PBS fun drive now. <laughs> but yeah, if, you know, if that's something you value, um, support us and support kids reading books, you know, it's, a, it's, all, it's, all, it's a great thing. So we've got about a minute and 30 seconds left. Um, I'm going to give you the number one, uh, one more time, 1-800-584-2788. Um, and you can also go to ctpublic.org. Um, Lucy, what you know? What you know? What's a, a good reason for people to donate now? What? Well, one of them is to help you do your work as oh, one of yeah. our exceptional visuals journalists here uh, at Connecticut Public. You know, we we do a lot of great programming, and our newsroom continues to grow robust robust coverage. Uh, and what uh, Ryan does and his team with the visuals uh, uh, department, you know, they're out there when we had a big snowstorm, and you're out there capturing what it looks like uh, for our our listeners. Uh, We have a a monthly documentary series called Cutline that examines issues around our state um, that our journalists are hosting uh, each uh, month. And uh, some of that work that Ryan and his team um, is also featured in the Cutline. But again, we're doing so much here to uh, help provide you more information about the state you live in. Uh, There's also entertainment programs on the weekend. We can't do any of this without your support. And the number to call again is 1-800-584-2788. You can also go online, ctpublic.org. Click that donate button. Thank you so much for your time and your support. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, earlier we talked about Connecticut's reliance on natural gas for heating and electricity and the region's vulnerabilities when demand is high. What are some long-term solutions? Our guest talked about the importance of diversifying energy sources while Connecticut works to become more reliant on renewable, clean energy like offshore wind in the next several years. State and federal governments offer incentives for homeowners to put in geothermal heating or electric heat pumps. Joining us now with more on the phone is Michael Saksky, who's CEO of Dandelion Energy. Michael, welcome to our show. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having So we know uh, some of our listeners have converted and are actually using geothermal energy. Can you talk about how these electric heat pumps work? Sure. Um, So at a very high level, it's really got two parts. There's a ground loop that is buried in the ground. And what that's doing is that's exchanging temperature with the soil that is a relatively constant temperature throughout the year, 50 to 55 degrees. And that helps to uh, speed up heating in the wintertime and augment cooling in the summertime. And then inside the home, that ground loop connects to a ground source heat pump, which is really just like an air source heat pump, except that instead of exchanging temperature with the outside air, it's exchanging temperature with the ground loop. 
So we heard from some listeners who have geothermal heat. Uh, one writes, uses plenty of electricity, uh, but I expect by January, if electric bill will be over $400. I also still need propane for part of the hot water heating. So what are some of the reasons why people should convert, Michael? Yeah, so you will use a little more electricity um, it, you know, it, because the heat pump does run off electricity. Um, and hot water you know, may or may not be separate. But, uh, you know, in general, you're going to reduce, you're going to be able to get rid of any fuel oil or propane that you use for heating. This is going to be replacing both your heating and your air conditioning system. And your cost of heating the home is going to be reduced by about 80%. And your cost of cooling the home is going to be reduced by about 30%. And it's a really long-lived system. So those ground loops are going to be good for 50 years or more. So, you know, suitable for any long-term planner. Um, And the heat pump itself is going to be good for 15 years or more. So we think it's a really uh, stable, comfortable, and eco-friendly solution. Uh, Joe uh, tweeted at us that uh, he and his wife love their geothermal system that a previous owner installed, but they found the systems can be very expensive up front and wants to know, are there any chance that state and national incentives may increase, Michael? Yeah, so um, so Connecticut's done a great job and really they introduced um, a significantly increased ground source heat pump incentive uh, just last year. Um, so it, it translates to about $1,500 per ton of heating capacity, where a normal home is about five tons. And then on the federal level, there's an investment tax credit of 26%. Uh, so, you know, that comes off your tax bill. And, you know, the other thing I'd point out is that there are terrific financing options available. So, um, you really, uh, it does cost a little more upfront, but when you look at the cost of ownership, and particularly when you think about it uh, as something that can be financed, most customers are going to see uh, bills that are the same, if not lower, over time. And uh, and then, you know, who knows? Maybe Build Back Better happens, and that could uh, that if it does happen, could add some additional savings uh, to what's available. Michael Saksky is here on the show, CEO of Dandelion Energy's company uh, helping install electric heat pumps or geothermal uh, heating uh, for homes. Uh, joining us now to talk about uh, the switch uh, for this particular homeowner, Kave from Westport, who converted to geothermal just over a year ago. Kave, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. So tell us uh, some of the decisions or why you decided to convert and, you know, how satisfied are you today? So when we purchased the house back in October, we had inherited a uh, oil burning furnace um, and also uh, natural gas uh, heat for our upstairs. And uh, a lot of that infrastructure, including the water heater, were quite old and they needed to be replaced. And I was basically uh, uh, at, a, at the crossroads to decide what which infrastructure or which system I was going to go with. I'd heard about Dandelion, uh, I'd heard about geothermal, and I'd inquired about uh, getting it installed and, and using it instead of burning oil. And uh, I think it just happened that uh, Dandelion uh, started servicing Connecticut uh, just around that same time, and uh, I went down the geothermal route. Hmm. 
Uh, so are you happy with, uh, with uh, the, the system now, especially when you're looking at cost? Yes, definitely happy. I mean, obviously, there is uh, an upfront cost for installing of the equipment and the trenching and the, the, the wells, etc. Uh, but we, you know, I don't have a lot of, you know, deep historical data to compare to, but I can say that for, you know, like the November, December, January timeframe, last year where we had oil at the house and this year where we've had geothermal we're seeing a significant amount of savings some you know it fluctuates month by month but on average we're saving roughly four hundred dollars a month in our utility bills Catherine Morehouse is still with us uh, from Politico. Uh, Catherine, uh, I'm just wondering if you can talk about this option, uh, being heat pump dependent. It doesn't really solve the the electric grid strain, does it? But maybe preferable for for residents who are are thinking about different options? Right, absolutely. I mean, it is is, uh, considered by the Department of Energy more energy efficient than a furnace heater or um, an air conditioner, um, since these can also be used as cooling units. Um, and so in that way, you know, it, it reduces the overall electricity use, but, uh, like has, as has been said, it still uses electricity, um, but it, it is more efficient and, uh, you know, build back better, uh, folks are, are eyeing it as a, as a potential greener solution to heating as well. And this is something that states like Connecticut are also encouraging. Yes. Uh, that's, yeah, I believe that's true. Mm-hmm. Michael Saksky, uh, so you started uh, um, putting in these systems for Fairfield County, I think, uh, last summer. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, you know, the demand. And when we think about, you know, putting up $45,000 up front for installation, you know, that can be pricey for some home, for home, some homeowners. Of course. Yeah. Um, so, you know, with so we started in Fairfield just because our headquarters is in uh, Mount Kisco. So that was an easy one, uh, close drive. Um, but we've now opened a facility in Hartford. Uh, we actually bought a small company in Durham. Uh, and really the reason for that is that we're seeing demand throughout Connecticut. There are over 500,000 homes that use fuel oil or propane for heat in Connecticut. And yeah, so that cash investment, it's definitely for real. Um, you know, after the incentives, uh, the, it looks more like twenty-five or 30000 And really what we're seeing is that uh, most of our customers uh, or many of our customers are financing and we make financing options available. And, you know, my sort of joke on that is, uh, you know, I recently had to replace my daughter's cell phone. And so we looked at cell phone companies and who was offering good deals. And at no point were we ever like, well, we're going to pay $17,000 for cell phones over the next seven years. It was like, no, it's $160 a month. And, uh, you know, I think when you start to look at it as a monthly expense, which is kind of how it hits our pocketbooks anyhow, uh, you know, it, it becomes quite affordable. That's Michael Saksky again. Saksky, CEO of Dandelion Energy. Thank you, Michael, for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And Kaveh calling in from Westport. Thank you for talking about uh, your conversion to geothermal energy uh, just over a year ago. Catherine Morehouse was with us, energy reporter for Politico. Catherine, thank you. Thank you so much, Lucy. You've been listening to Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. We'll be back tomorrow talking about indie bookstores. First, this week is Connecticut Public Radio's short winter membership campaign. You'll hear from our staff this week about the importance of supporting public radio, including the conversations you hear on Where We Live. 
Your dollars also support our growing newsroom with robust coverage about Connecticut. You can support us with a pledge, 1-800-584-2788. With me today is visuals journalist Ryan Karen King. Hi, Ryan. Hey, hey again. Yeah, I think, um, you know, if you just listened to either a segment or the full hour of this show, um, you know, you should you will probably guess that it took a fair amount of work and and several brains at the table to come up with this show. But where we live does this like, you know, every weekday. Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, and we have a pretty small staff comparatively to a lot of other, you know, of the the, the big public radio shows that, you, you know, you might hear from WNYC. But, you know, the quality of this show definitely matches those. And when you listen to Connecticut Public Radio, um, you know, you're not just getting, uh, a, you know, a real solid uh, hour of where we live, you know, every weekday. You're getting Morning Edition uh, with Laura, hosted locally by Lori Mack. Um, you're getting the Colin McEnroe show. You're getting Disrupted and Audacious um, by our hosts, uh, Kalila Brandine and, and Kion Wolf. Um, there are other shows that I'm forgetting, you know, All, all Things Considered with uh, John Henry Smith. Um, you've got the uh, the Accountability Project here. Um, there's a million things going on, and I can't even keep track of them, and I work here. Um, and it's, it's really exciting to be a part of. Um, but, you know, most importantly, this stuff helps you kind of navigate your world, um, and it's important to support it. 1-800-584-2788. That's the number to call. You can also go to CT public.org. Everything you shared is true. I'm going to vouch for Ryan. Verified. <laughs> and especially when we think about this pandemic that's uh, still raging, unfortunately. But uh, the amount of, of coverage and the programs that have increased here on uh, Connecticut Public, we've been able to do this to provide you great journalism and analysis uh, about issues that matter to you and your community. It's because of listener support that makes this possible. So again, it's our short winter membership campaign uh, before the end of the week. We hope you call in at 1-800-584-2788. You know, Ryan, a lot of people listen to the live stream, so you can just mm-hmm. go to that donate button right there at ctpublic.org and support this radio station. Continue to help us uh, provide you uh, coverage uh, about the issues that matter to you, not only here on where we live, but uh, on our, our local airwaves as well as all the different new podcasts uh, that Connecticut Public brings to you, like Audacious, like Disrupted, like Seasoned. Again, the number 1-800-584-2788. We need your support to keep these programs possible. Thank you. Thank you.